Remember as we come to chapter 32 here, kind of what's going on as it relates to Moses. He has been at this time 40 days and 40 nights up on Mount Sinai and he's been receiving uh, a second revelation from God related to the building of the tabernacle, the place that God would meet with his children, the furnishings uh, of the tabernacle in terms of how they were to be constructed and what they were to look like. And he was also receiving instruction in terms of the garb and the apparel related to the high priest and also uh, the regular priests. And so he's been absent from the camp of, of the children of Israel down at the base of the mountain for 40 days. When he left, he turned the camp over, not knowing how long he would be gone. He left the camp in the charge of Aaron, his brother, and also another man by the name of Hur. And uh, so Moses is up on the mount. The people are down at the base. 40-day separation between the two. And now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to to Aaron, which was natural because he had been uh, left in charge, and publicly so. So they went to Aaron and they said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Uh, it, it is, th this passage is always to me astonishing in how... Uh, their dismissal of Moses. What Moses has gone through in order to be used by God to deliver them from Egypt, all of the plagues, all of the persecution, all of the difficulty, leading them in the wilderness for this period of time, the crossing of the Red Sea, and he departs from them in order to meet with God, draw close to God, in order to receive revelation that would be a benefit to these people, and it's kind of a classic case of what have you done for me lately, they're through with them. This man Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Let's get someone else in his place. And it really speaks to uh, a thanklessness that can uh, be a part of a certain uh, segment of certainly professing Christianity, those who profess to know the Lord. It's a carnal kind of uh, mixed multitude that's with the children of Israel right now. It certainly doesn't reflect everyone, but it reflects a big enough group. I think that one of the things that it teaches us in our service to the Lord is that sooner or later, uh, in, in terms of your faithfulness to what God has called you to do, it will all come down to obedience. You will never be sustained on the popularity of people or the compliments of people. All those things are wonderful when they come, but they will never sustain you. And, and I, one, of the, one of the really the saddest verses to me in the whole Bible is found in the New Testament when Paul, after having sacrificed so much, invested a year and a half of his life uh, in the church at Corinth. He had only one place, Ephesus, that he had spent a longer period of time, three years in Ephesus, than in Corinth. And he writes to them in his second epistle, and he says, he says, the more that I love you, the less that I'm loved. It's terrible. Terrible. 
But it was Jesus' portion, it was Paul's portion. Then it's the portion of the way that things are even today. But it's good for us to realize service as unto the Lord. That's what keeps us in the saddle. Now they have attached um, an unhealthy uh, attitude toward Moses. In other words, Moses is gone now for 40 days and uh, they get impatient over that. And uh, there's a certain kind of person, and uh, I might be one of those people, <laughs> that uh, likes things to happen. And, uh, but sometimes faith is as demonstrated as fully in waiting upon God as in doing something when God calls us to do it. So he's asking them to wait for 40 days here. They don't know how long it's going to be. But Moses has the tablets now. He's about ready to come down from the mountain. But they're tired of waiting. They want to take control of this thing. We've got this gigantic deal going on. We've come out of Egypt. We're headed toward this other land. Moses is gone. And it doesn't look like God's doing anything. So we're going to take this thing over on things. have to be careful of impatience. When God is being patient in a situation, we must not become impatient ourselves in that or we're going to create a terrible mess. Uh, Abraham did it in the production of Ishmael and they're going to make a terrible mess out of their impatience here. Sometimes it is very, very hard to wait on God's timing when it looks like something's unraveling in front of our eyes. But if God is being patient, in a situation and he's waiting on that and he hasn't given us any instruction to do something in that quiet kind of season then you stay patient I'll stay patient in the midst of it so he's gone up on the mountain he's been gone for 40 days and and then now what they want to do is they want to replace him with some kind of a of gods they said come to, to Aaron come and make us gods now I, I have it highlighted in my Bible which means it ought to be highlighted in any Bible but anyway but those those four words come make us gods now is that one of the dumbest things that you can say but you don't even a person can say it and not even realize it who would want to follow a God you could make? What kind of a God is that? The Creator is always greater than the creation. It's just ridiculous. Make us gods. I mean, immediately you think, oh, wait a second, time out. All right, we're getting a little impatient here, but that's a ridiculous statement, so let's back off here a little bit. But they don't. They want to have a, a God made. Now, I don't think that they have the idea that they're going to make Yahweh or Jehovah or something like that. They want to make some kind of an image that represents God to them. And that's what Moses had represented to them. Moses had been the one that God had used to deliver them out of Egypt and uh, bring them this far in their journey toward the promised land and all. So they were kind of had this unhealthy relationship with God through Moses. He was like a mediator. And when he was gone, they wanted another thing, another person, another something in that place by which they could relate to God. And any time a person does that, whether they put another human being in the position of a mediator or some object in the position of a mediator, it is a confession on the part of that person that they have lost the consciousness of the presence of God and intimacy with God in their own personal relationship. 
So now they're going to try and work it up and, and through some kind of an object that they will look to to provoke something between them and God. It happens all the time. Sometimes people will associate um, fellowship with God or the presence of God more strongly with a, a certain environment versus another environment. Sometimes uh, the same seat in a room or in a church. That's where God met with me, that's where I got saved, or that's where I got baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that chair becomes some kind of a something, you know, that that's where God, everything happens between me and God. can happen on McHenry. Hard. <laughs> but there's nothing too hard for God on things. But, but that's kind of what they, they had gotten. They, they had some kind of a little mediator thing going on with God and, and they wanted to continue that. Some kind of an object or some person represented God's presence and something physical, something you could touch, something that you could feel. And, uh, and so that's what they, they asked for. So they said, this make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, and the contempt, I'm still stunned at it. I, I talked about it and I'm still worked up over it. The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, they should be saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. We don't even know what's become of him. And then Aaron said to them, you thankless brood of vipers, talk about my brother that way. Talk about God that way. Try to replace the true and the living God with a stupid idol. Get back to your tents. Be a short chapter. <laughs> That's what he should have said to him. And Aaron is a leader here. And, and he, has a, he has a very, very... Um, he has a great weakness in his life. In fact, it's a, it's a flaw that is a fatal flaw in a leader. Uh, if he uh, if he doesn't grow out of it, and Aaron would grow out of it, but but he 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 it demonstrates incredible weakness at this particular point. He said to them, he said, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So they had this ornamentation, probably uh, gifts that had been given to them as they had kind of left Egypt and. And had been received that loot as kind of back pay. So all of the people, this, he says, break off these golden earrings and all of this. I don't know where he comes up with this kind of thing. And, and bring them to me. So all the people, they're glad to do it. And uh, they want, all they wanted was an idol. They're willing to sacrifice for it. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And then notice what Aaron did here. He received the gold from their hand. And then he fashioned it. Now he's going to give an alibi later. It's going to be quite... Talk about revisionist history. Man, it's like he's working for the press. But he, he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. So that's exactly what Aaron's response is to, to their request here. And, and so he takes the gold, molds it, melts it down, fashions it in, into a calf. Now a calf was uh, uh, worshipped in Egypt. It was a symbol of power, a symbol of fertility. Not only in Egypt, but also in Canaan, the land that they were going into. So they were very familiar with the worship of, of these different gods that were... Uh, represented uh, by the, the bull. So he makes this golden image and then notice what he declares concerning this. Then they said, th then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. What? <laughs> it's a little gold calf <laughs> sitting on a 
didn't even, he didn't even got to build a pedestal for it yet. He's going to get to that in a minute. This is the God that brought you out of, of Egypt. Just insane. Now, you think it was thankless to be Moses. How thankless is it to be God to these people and sometimes to us? After all he did for them, all he did to deliver them out of, of Egypt, all the parting of the Red Sea, all of the miracles, the water provided at Mara, all, and, and then the, the, the provision of, of the different things and, and all, and the, you know, the lightning, the pillar of fire by uh, night, and the pillar of cloud by day, and all of these, these kinds of things. And I mean, it would it, it, astonishing that they would look and say, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. But that's what they say. And so when Aaron saw it, what the people ascribed now to this, this idol that he created, he built an altar before it. And then Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. I guess it's all, all okay if you add a little God talk to it. So we're going we're to worship this idol, but it's okay because it's going to be a feast to the Lord. <laughs> And, and so this thing's all uh, goofed up in their minds, but, but it's very, very, uh, very common. God is righteously angry over what's, what's happening here uh, right, right now um, on things. Now, all of this that they're, they're doing here is a violation of the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments. Uh, they had bowed to another God beside the Lord, violation of the first commandment. They made a graven image, violation of the second commandment. They used the Lord's name in vain, false worship, violation of the third commandment. And so he calls on them now uh, to, to worship this, this God and calls a feast for the Lord the next day. Now, uh, what, in terms of Aaron and his weakness, uh, what, what caused him to fail here? And, and it's a classic example of people-pleasing and a fear of man. It's important to have a love for man and a respect for our fellow human beings. But we must never have a fear of man that is greater than our fear of God. Where we would, we would be more inclined to disobey God in order to obey the fleshly or the, uh, or the unbiblical demands of people rather than deny and reject the, the unbiblical demands of people in order to honor God. And he gets the whole thing uh, backwards. And he's unwilling to stand against their sin and against their carnality here. I don't think that any leader among God's people has any hope of lasting any length of time where this is the case, where there is that fear of man that is greater than a fear of God. And yet, we're all tempted by it. We all possess it to some degree or another. Everybody likes to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. But in a leader, especially in such a large kind of congregation that they have, two to three million people here, with thus two to three million different ideas of, of how this thing is going to go, this is a guy that's got to listen to God and he's got to obey God no matter what. And he wasn't willing to do that. And, and, and he's going to... Please, please the people. And, uh, and, and, and that's what's behind in, in his character. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It's a trap. Trap us into the wrong decisions. I think of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Galatia. 
He wanted all those churches in Galatia to like him. He wanted to be in, he wanted them, he didn't want to, you know, using his name and spitting on the ground and stuff like that. I mean, how the Apostle Paul got blasphemed and how he got, I mean, spoken against and resisted and persecuted and beaten and all these different kinds of things. He wasn't out looking for that kind of stuff. But it came, it came his way because when push came to shove, he said, I'm going to please God in these things. And, and, then, and I'm not going to please man. He wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of God. Where carnal people like this want to take the situations that God has given us oversight of, and where they want to take it, and then where God wants to take it, two entirely different things, and the leader must make a stand in those situations. And you know what? He'll pay a price for that. You may never see it, but he'll pay a price for that. She'll pay a price for that. Doesn't matter which, which sex. In order to stop and say, this is what I'm going to do. And man, look out for what comes next. And, and, but that's what it is that has to be done. A leader must make a stand even if no one else will. And, and Aaron doesn't do that. Now notice... In verse 6, that they rose early on the next day and they offered burnt offerings. Again, this is just nutty. Nutty. What is a burnt offering, as we've seen in the scripture? It's an offering of consecration. It's an offering that speaks of my complete and total dedication to God. Because the burnt offering was consumed completely upon the altar. And that's what it, it represented, that full sacrifice. So they're offering burnt offerings to the Lord. So they got the God talk going. They got the religious kind of activities going. But their life's not lining up with it. So here I'm offering a burnt offering to God, saying that my life is completely consecrated to you, and I'm in the middle of violating the first three of the Ten Commandments. And nobody's blinking. Nobody's blinking here. Not only that, but then they also offered the peace offerings, which are kind of, that spoke of fellowship uh, offerings uh, to, to the Lord. And it represented having a fellowship or a relationship with God. Nothing wrong here with our relationship with God. We're offering peace offerings. Everything's great, you know, and, and uh, this isn't a problem with God and all. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. So it turns into a party now. Aaron has lost control of the situation. Instead of stopping that thing when there was a leak in the dam, he let it go and now the thing is just broken loose now. They, this group of people who he should have stood up against now, they've taken control of the whole thing. He can't reel it back in at this particular point. Aaron isn't behind it saying, now let's go ahead and, and let's, let's have a big party and all. The word play that's used there is used elsewhere in the, New, in the Old Testament for sexual immorality. These people, and we're going to see a little bit later in the chapter when Moses comes down from the mountain, these people are engaged in, if not sexual activity in their dancing and all of that, in very, very lewd sexual dances. They are doing what they have seen in Egypt was being practicing Canaan, all the people around them. They're, they're not on hullabaloo or where the action is or American Bandstand. 
this is really, you know, sick what's going on here. And, and they, they've taken charge and this is exactly what, what's going on. So it devolves into this kind of sexual activity or at least simulated sexual activity and all. And, and it's out of Aaron's control but he's, he's still responsible for it. And then the Lord said to Moses, meanwhile up on the top of the mountain, he said, go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God doesn't claim them as his people right now. Moses, those people you brought out of Egypt, those are your people. It's kind of like, you know, when you got two parents and, and uh, let's say you got a teenage son that's uh, having a rough day or whatever. And uh, uh, dad comes home after work or something, and, and then what does the wife say? Your son! She didn't claim him. She doesn't claim him after what the day they've had. So that throws him over. Now Moses isn't going to accept that, as we'll see in, in just a moment. It's a, it's a fabulous uh, insight into a negotiation of who's stuck with him and, and all. So, but God said, your people who you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Moses is having the time of his life. I mean, they ought to be so happy. Their leaders up there on a mountaintop experience, hearing from God, laying out, you know, the destiny of the nation and, and, and all of this. They have turned quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've already violated the Ten Commandments, which they had, they had committed to obeying earlier in, in the book of Exodus. And they've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The omnipresence of God. He's everywhere all at once. He heard everything they were doing. Saw everything they were doing. Heard everything they were saying. Watching everything they were doing even at that moment. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. And so he, he declares them to be uh, stiff-necked. Now, a stiff-necked horse or a stiff-necked uh, oxen was an animal where the owner of the animal is trying to use a rein to lead them. And the, and the animal is stiffening its neck, disobeying the orders of the master. Uh, stiff-necked people are people who do that to their God, to their maker. They're ignoring the leading, the direction, the commandments of their master. They're going to do what they want to do. So he calls them a stiff-necked people. That's what stiff-necked people are. And now therefore, let me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them, I'm, and, I, that I'm, and I may consume them and make a, a nation, uh, make of you a great nation. Moses, this is such a grievous sin. I'll just wipe them out and, and judge them, consume them, and then I'll, I'll start all over again with you. Now, there might be some of us in the room that would look and say, well, okay, we've got to do what you've got to do. <laughs> you know? I mean, what can I say? I had a shot at it, you know. Moses, instead, he listens to that, and he immediately begins to intercede. It's one of the most beautiful intercessions in all the Bible. He begins to talk to God about these people. And he's going to plead with the Lord here in verse 11. He's going to plead with the Lord in prayer for the Lord to relent of his judgment on the basis of three arguments. And he, he goes from the weaker to the stronger to the strongest argument for, for getting God to, to relent of the judgment that the people clearly uh, deserve. And then Moses pleaded with the Lord and said to him, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? 
whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. So it's kind of like a pong game. Goes back, you know, to uh, to the Lord. Uh, it's a ridiculous illustration. Who knows what pong is, except uh, 50-year-old people. Your ch- people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with uh, great power and with a mighty hand. And, and so the first reason he gives for God for relenting of his judgment is that he has already invested so much work in these people that it would be a waste now to wipe them out. The second reason he gives, verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak and say, he, that is the Lord, brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. second reason he gives is that people will misunderstand his judgment on the children of Israel, especially the Egyptians. In other words, if God wiped them out now, then the Egyptians would interpret that history as being, well, God did not remove the children of Israel from Egypt because there was anything wrong with Egypt. It wasn't because we were harsh taskmasters or oppressors or terrible people like that. God knew that these people needed to be destroyed, so he moved them out of Egypt so he could destroy them out in the wilderness. There's nothing wrong with us. Everything was wrong with them. So he knew they would misunderstand the the world that would walk it would misunderstand the actions of of God. And then finally, the the highest uh, argument that he uses, he says to the Lord, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that is Jacob, your servants, and then here it is, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I will give to your descendants and they shall and uh, and they shall inherit it forever. And he reminds the Lord of the fact that when he made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob concerning the possessing of the land, all the promises related to the Jewish people that he made that with them solely based upon his word. It was a one-sided covenant. He did not make that covenant with them on the basis that I will do this if you do this. He said, I will do this. It was a one-sided covenant, just like Calvary is a one-sided covenant. So he reminds him of the fact that this, there is no out in this contract based upon the faithfulness or the lack of faithfulness among, among God's people. Beautiful, beautiful, uh, reasoned and, and, and holy uh, intercession being lifted up to the Lord. And so, in other words, in light of the intercession, the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, sometimes people look at something like this and they say, well, uh, here is an example of uh, uh, prayer changing the mind of God. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. If God had intended to destroy the children of Israel, no prayer of Moses would have changed that. He, he granted this prayer because Moses' prayer was in line with what the Father wanted to do uh, all along. First John chapter 5, it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He asks us, and if we know that He, he hears us, and we, if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. 
And, and so Moses' prayer was a testimony, I think, really to the shepherd's heart that God had developed in Moses. I think that God is smiling all the way through this prayer. Remember Moses 40 years earlier when he had um, taken the children of Israel and, and he had seen in Egypt the uh, abuse of the e Egyptian soldier against the Hebrew slaves and he killed the Egyptian. And then the next day he saw two Hebrews fighting with one another and he comes to them and he says, why do you fight with one another? And they said, well, what are you gonna, who are you and what are you going to do with us? You're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Uh, and they rejected him. Moses was 40 years earlier, early in his calling on as a, as a deliverer. And, and so he, he, they reject him as the deliverer, and as, as Moses experiences that, that uh, rejection, he abandons them because of their rejection of, of him and, uh, and goes out into a 40-year exile and, uh, and, 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 and just leaves them. No prayer for them, no involvement in them, nothing like that. He's done, just wants to live his life out and die. And just one little statement, and he's through with them. And here they're doing something far, far uh, worse, and he rises up to intercede for them. What's it an evidence of? God developing his heart in Moses as a shepherd. And Moses' prayer was in line with what the Father wanted to do. It's interesting how our prayers change over time, doesn't it, as Christians? And sometimes early on, you know, we want everyone just to be smoked. You know, just boom. You know, a little wipe that person out or wipe this thing and do this and all that kind of deal. And then what happens over time is the Lord kind of makes us more and more like Him. Uh, our prayer becomes a little more nuanced. <laughs> Uh, a, a little more, uh, uh, you know, representative of the big picture. And it's all because God is making us more and more like Him. And, and that's what's happening here. The Lord was happy to relent uh, of this, so He's going to discipline them for what they've done. And Moses turned and he went down from the mountain. And, uh, and the two tablets of the testimony, Ten Commandments, were in his hands. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the engraving was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Uh, just priceless, right? And then Moses heard the noise of uh, Joshua, heard the noise of the people as they shouted. Moses comes down from the top of the mount. Uh, Joshua has been 40 days part way up the mount. As he comes down, they kind of come together again. And uh, as they're listening to all of the shouting of the people, uh, Joshua misunderstands it to be the noise of war. He said, there's the noise of war in the camp. Uh, he's, 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 you know, wonderfully, uh, you know, thinks the best about the situation. And then Moses said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. Joshua, you're not hearing a battle down there. You're hearing people party. And so it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf 
and the dancing. Put yourself in Moses' place. Forty days later, I mean, these, guys, these people have the, the incredible history, I mean, the incredible future out in front of them, incredible history right behind them. He left them in a certain place. He comes down after 40 days, and this is what he sees. I mean, it would be very, very shocking. He saw the calf, and then all of this dancing, lewd dancing in front of the calf and everything, and so Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hand and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. I don't think he just lost control and uh, you know oh boy we lost the first copy of the Ten Commandments because Moses couldn't control his temper. I think he looked at it and he realized they, virtually all of this, these have been violated here in the time that it took me to get them to even come down into the camp and so he threw them down as a representation of the fact that they had already been broken. Uh, somebody has observed, of course, in this passage that Moses is the only man to have broken all Ten Commandments at the same time. And uh, that is accurate. And so you know the answer to that double uh, jeopardy question if you're on there. And that gets uh, asked. So he, he throws those down. He breaks those priceless tablets. Then he took the calf which they had made. And God says they made it. This isn't a God. They took the calf which they had made. He burned it in the fire. So he melted it down. Ground it into powder. It's terrible when you can melt your God and ground it into powder. Scattered it on the water. And then he made the children of Israel uh, to, to drink it. And so, and so he, he's, he's doing two things here. He's exposing to them the folly of worshiping something that a man could come along and just, you know, grind up into powder and destroy it. If it can't protect itself against one single man destroying it, how in the world could you hope that this God would protect two to three million people? So he's showing them the silliness of what it is that, that they're worshiping uh, there. I think, the, and then secondly, drinking the water symbolizes having them bear the consequences of their sin. So it's kind of like getting a taste of your own medicine or uh, get, you know, giving them their fill of their idol as they drink the water with the gold and all. And, and, some, and sometimes God will give us the fill of our own sin in order to make us uh, sick uh, of it. And so that's what it was representing. Later Moses will talk about it in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 21 in this whole incident. And he said, Then I took your sin, the calf which you had made and he refers to it as sin and, and he's just giving them their fill uh, of their sin and kind of an outward demonstration. And Moses said to Aaron, he, he, he takes care of that idol first thing off, then he turns to Aaron and he said to Aaron what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? I mean they must have tortured you. They must have put bamboo shoots under your fingernails. They must have buried you neck deep in the sand and let ants crawl into your ears to get you to cry uncle, you know, to do something like this. I mean, they must have tortured you something fierce, Aaron. Tell me all about it. And that's, that's what he's, he's thinking here. And so Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. Moses, let's calm down here a little bit. And there's a perfectly good explanation here on things. So he wants him to calm down. Moses is hot here. Righteous indignation. He said, you know the people. That they're set on evil. 
For they came to me and they said, Make us gods that, we sh that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Well, true so far. Accurate representation of things so far. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And so they gave it to me. I cast the gold into the fire and a scab came out. I mean, it's perfectly a, a perfect explanation of... That's the worst lie. That's the worst lie in the whole Bible, just about. That's ridiculous. Who's going to believe that? Put, took a bunch of gold and threw it in, and he's lying in front of the whole camp and God and everybody. I mean, it's just, he, when he gets busted, he's so ashamed of what he's done. I mean, how can he, you know, in his mind, how can I tell you that he needs to tell the How can I tell you the truth about this thing? As I think about the truth of it, it's, it's too embarrassing or humiliating to admit it. So he makes up this story and, and lay, lays out this, this uh, uh, lie. And, 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 and the, he, he, he does a very interesting thing. Remember when Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden? And God went to confront Adam, and, and Adam said, Listen, it was the woman you gave me. And he put two people. He put the woman and God between him and the responsibility for his sin. So listen, God, you and that lady, you got some things to talk about over there. I'll be waiting over here, and you get that worked out. I'm completely innocent of this whole thing and all. Now, Aaron's going to come in, and we're descendants of Adam and Eve here. He's going to come in, and he's going to put a whole bunch of things between him and, and the sin. First of all, he blames the people. Uh, then he blames the furnace. And then he blames the gold, the calf, for just kind of spontaneously uh, turning into something and then coming out of the, uh, out of the fire and all. He just a, he's just a victim, uh, innocent victim of, of circumstances uh, here. Now to give you some idea of, of the gravity of this whole situation as he's lying in all of this and, uh, the, and the danger that Aaron is in at the moment, we're told later in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 20 that it's only the intercession of Moses at this point for Aaron that keeps God from striking Aaron dead right on the spot for what he's, what he's done and what he is doing right here. And, and Moses interceded for him. When, when we fail in, in our representation uh, of, of the Lord as, as leaders and as Christians, because we're all leaders as Christians in the world, we're the head and not, not the tail. When, when we've done something that's stupid and it's wrong and it's disobedient and we're busted on it and God busts us on, on the thing, we must never make excuses for it or blame shift. And it's the natural tendency to do that or then to produce a lie over how, what it is that's happened here in order to buy a little bit of time and maybe I can get out of this and, and all that kind of thing. And you see so often, even recently, sometimes in the news you see someone who will use a lie to buy some time and then everything only gets worse. See, the problem with Aaron here in this lying and the problem with anyone is, is we would serve the Lord and, and try and make a difference in the world for him is what he had already done was serious enough. But, but God could address it, and God was, was going to address it. But when he fails to take responsibility for what he's done, and now he lies and he blames shifts, now you're talking about additional character issues, deep character issues in his life. 
And very, very often in a situation where something happens in our life, we fall short of what we should be, have done in that situation. God uses someone to confront us with that. It will be very hard sometimes to admit our wrongdoing because of pride and all shouldn't be hard, but sometimes it is our wrongdoing in the thing and so, and also often, uh, but if we, if we just would confess that, then that's as big as it gets. But once a person lies now, then God and the people that are involved in it looks and says, wow, this is much, much bigger than, than here because now we're looking at a lack of character that's far broader in their life. Very often our response to being busted on different things and if we respond improperly, the situation escalates way beyond what it would have otherwise been. And that's what happens here with, with Aaron uh, also. The problems are, are, are very big in his life. Now, this is how we're to handle ourselves when we sin and when we misrepresent the Lord or something like that and we're confronted with it. Just to admit it. Just to admit it. Then take personal responsibility for it. Don't blame everybody else for it. And that's right, out of the Garden of Eden, everybody else's fault, right? Then confess the sin to God, ask for His, his forgiveness, repent of it, of, of it. Lord, I, don't, I turn away from that, I don't ever want to do that again. Then confess my sin to people that have been affected by my, my sin, ask for their forgiveness, learn everything I can from the situation so I don't have to find myself here another time, and then move forward in, my plan, in, in God's plan for my life. And people will respect that. They may struggle for a while on things, but they can respect that. And they can honor that. And God can honor that uh, too. But Moses doesn't, Aaron at this point, doesn't give God that, that to work with. Now, Moses now turns away from uh, Aaron and now he addresses the people. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, their, what their activities were shameful, even in front of the pagan culture, this, what they were doing was just wrong and, and lewd. And then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come with me and all the the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him, to a man. So obviously not everyone's involved in this. The Levites aren't. It seems as if, because Moses and Aaron were both Levites, and Aaron has been left in charge of the whole thing and all, so here Aaron is doing these different things, and the Levites are probably horrified at the decisions that he's making, but Moses has left them in charge. Now when a second Levite leader comes on the scene that offers them an alternative, something godly to join themselves to, as, as a, a single tribe of people, they align themselves now with Moses. They're horrified at, at what it is. It, that's going on. So all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put, on, uh, put his sword on his side and go in and out from, the entrance, uh, from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man uh, his neighbor. So it's talking about the men and women who are still engaged in the sexual immorality and the immoral dancing and all of that in front of the calf. Moses comes on the scene and they don't stop. 
They don't stop. And one of the things that tells us is they, they weren't concerned about Moses coming back. They weren't con- if they were concerned about Moses coming back and wanted to respect Moses, his relationship with God, his position as a leadership, once he came down from that mountain, everything would have stopped. They were just trying to get rid of Moses to do what they wanted to do here. So he comes down and even him showing up doesn't stop them from doing what it is that they're doing. And what they are doing now is just open-faced rebellion against God's law, against God, against God's authority, against Moses. And you have a very serious leaven now that has the danger of spreading through all two to three million people. Now remember... These people have been called by God to be a distinctive people in human history, not so that God could give them the Ten Commandments and give them a tabernacle supremely and all these things. The great thing about these people is that God is going to bring the Savior of the world into the world through them. And these people love their flesh, they love their self-will, their sensuality, all that. They don't care what the consequences are at their moment in history or all the way through human history as long as they get to do their thing. And that's what, that's what they decide to do. That's the mindset that they have and that's, that's the mindset that's, that is, is looking to infect the entire uh, camp of, of, of Israel here. And so Moses says, go in, every one of them. He gives them a chance to to repent, as we're going to see. He gives them a chance to to repent there in verse 26. Whoever's on the Lord's side, they just keep doing their thing. And so he says, now go ahead in there and wipe out everyone that will not judge them righteously who will not repent of their sin. And when he speaks to them of kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his, his neighbor, he's, he's not talking about, you know, just be indiscriminate in, 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 in your judgment and that kind of thing. What he's saying is, don't be a respecter of persons. If you see someone that's dancing around doing this thing, trying to affect God's plan and, and, and infect the, the people of God with this thing, and, and you look and it's your cousin or it's your uncle or it's your nephew or it's your brother, you take them out. No respect of persons in the judgment. This thing had to be eradicated as an influence in the body of Christ. And of course, the, the same thing happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the New Testament where you've got that guy that's um, sleeping with his stepmother in the church and nobody's saying a word about it. And everyone in the church at Corinth thinks they're so liberal and broad-minded because we don't condemn anyone around here and we don't condemn any sin around here. And Paul looks at it and says, you guys are representing God before the whole city. What are you doing? Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I judge this as if I was present. Get that man out of that congregation. Deliver him to the devil so that he might repent, so that people are not confused about your God and the holiness of your God. And he was decisive in dealing with that, that situation. And, and so it's the same thing here. God comes in very, very strongly to protect his plan in human history. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And then Moses said, consecrate yourself today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. And so he commends them. 
them for the righteousness of their judgment. That, and and what, it, what it's saying is, that wasn't easy for them to do. That wasn't easy for them to do. You know the hardest things that I deal with in the body of Christ as a pastor? Is the person who does not get the big picture of what we're about here in this world. That we are representing the Lord in this world. And they just want to do what they want to do. They want to just disobey the Word of God, how they want to disobey the Word of God, openly and, and flagrantly do that, and yet they want to continue to come to this church. And they don't realize so often the, the influence that they're introducing into the body and the danger of it. And they just look at it and it's just like, I don't care what people think of Christ. I don't think, care what people think of that whole church. I don't care what they think about God. I don't care if they come to know God or not. I don't care about any of those things as long as I get to do my little fleshly thing. And that's where God says, you step in in church discipline and get that influence out of your midst. The stakes are very, very large. We don't live for ourselves anymore as Christians. We live to represent a king and a kingdom. Those are the stakes attached to our lives. And so the holy living that's required related to that and then the decisiveness of the judgment of that kind of, of open rebellion is, is God does both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and Moses commends them for the stand that they made it couldn't have been easy for them to do that but they were willing to do it for the Lord now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people you have committed a great sin he confronts them with a sin so they, there's however many number of people that were doing this, but the big silent majority didn't do anything about it. They didn't rise up against it. And so he confronts all of them with their sin. He said, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement uh, for you, a covering for your sin here uh, through, through prayer and intercession. And then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin. And they have made for themselves a God of gold. He still can't believe it. He said, yet uh, now, if you will forgive their sin. So he's calling on God. Would you forgive them? But if not, if you won't forgive them, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have uh, written. And so he, he begins to intercede for them, ask that God would, would forgive them. And then he says, to the Lord, listen, if you're not going to forgive them, if you're going to judge them and wipe them out, which is exactly what, what they deserve, then why don't you go ahead and wipe me out uh, also. Now, this of course represents an incredible love that Moses had uh, for these people, and a love for the plans that God had attached 
uh, to, to these people. Now some people uh, believe that, that your book that's ref- that Moses refers to here, it refers to the Lamb's book of life that's mentioned in, in Revelation chapter 21 verse 27. So that Moses is thus asking, saying that if God will not forgive them, and uh, then that his everlasting life based upon faith would be uh, taken away uh, from, from him. There are others that believe that this book doesn't refer to everlasting life, but it, but it refers to physical life alone. That Moses is saying, God, if you're going to wipe them out and, and physically destroy them, then and I'm, I'll be willing to die a premature death with them. I want to be, uh, for all of their faults, I want to be uh, identified with these uh, people. Now, I think that second uh, understanding of it is, is probably correct for two reason, reasons. God, when God speaks of my book again in the next verse, and it's clearly in the context of a physical judgment, physical judgment there. Now, Paul later on in the New Testament is going to talk about his love for the Jewish people, his desire that they would uh, come to know the Lord and and his zeal for them, Romans chapter uh, 9, verse 1. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh now Moses talks about just dying physically here is uh, Paul's love for the Jewish people that's so great he says I would give up my eternal salvation if they in mass as a group of people would come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah think about that how much do you appreciate your salvation tonight a lot think about the impact of God's salvation in your life the impact that it has on you the amount we understand from the word of God I mean how how deep our appreciation is and understanding how wide it is all these then you take the Apostle Paul who just understood these things way beyond I could what I could ever dream of understanding and he looks and says I'd be willing to give that up for these people to to come to Jesus as as their Savior, I mean, a tremendous expression of of His love for His people, and that they would get in line with God's plan for them as a people. And Moses had had the uh, the same thing. So this beautiful intercession, He's willing to kind of take their place here in the judgment, or at least uh, you know uh, experience the same judgment that they He knew that they deserved. And the Lord said to Moses, "Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book." Moses, it's a nice thought. It's a nice, it's a nice thing that you're offering here, but it doesn't work that way. You can't buy anything for anyone else. Everyone else has to make their own individual decision related uh, to these these things. And so he he kind of throws it back and corrects them a little bit. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So he, in 
just incredible grace takes and puts them back on his plan now to continue now to the promised land where we'll pick it up the week after this this coming week verse 31 uh, chapter 31 Aaron makes a couple really, really big mistakes in sins in his ministry. He'll make another one uh, a little bit uh, later when he and Miriam kind of join together to confront Moses later on. And this is just a, this just as big and as ugly and as messy a failure as you could just about find in the whole Bible. I mean, it's one of those moments in the entire history of the children of Israel in the Old Testament that just stands out as like that's an infamous moment in their history. And it really is. I, I wouldn't want my failure to be on, on a page like this or my response and all of those kinds of things. But Aaron's is. He was given great responsibility and God puts it here for our instruction. Number one, so that we would learn from it and we would learn from the mistakes that Aaron made so that we wouldn't make those same mistakes in our own families. Listen, what parent doesn't understand pressure from children as they reach certain ages that is as great as any congregation of God's people can put upon church leadership? So to learn something, the fear of God that keeps us clean and, and, and uh, separated from the fear of, of, of man, keeps us freed from that. So the things to learn as it relates to Moses' life. But you know the amazing thing and the really super big thing about this passage is great and is terrible and is just laughable and almost indescribable as this failure is. God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. God finds a way. He finds a way in His grace and in His love for them and for Aaron to forgive them and to continue His plan through their lives. I never want anyone to ever look at Aaron's failure here and look at that and say, that's all that is, is about failure. Get into chapter 33. God says, all right. You're going to bear some consequences for this sin. I'm going to teach you some things about this. But pull, up your, pull on your boots and let's start heading toward the promised land again. And God had the grace for it. And God has a grace for you and for me too. Again, as long as we're not going to throw excuses on Him and blame everybody else, but take our own responsibility for it, confess the sin to Him, learn from it, ask for forgiveness, resolve whatever differences have occurred between us and other people as a result of our sin or our failure, and then move forward confident in God's grace. It isn't to preach a, a lightness related to God's grace. It's there in the passage. And I'd like the worship team to come forward right now and to lead us in a little bit of worship and just to celebrate, no matter what songs they sing and all, but in our own hearts tonight related to this passage, to just thank God for all of the grace that He has shown us in our lives, even though He hasn't written it in a book, 
and, and to thank Him for that grace. A grace that is greater than all of our sins. And the willingness to send His Son to die on a cross for us in order to pay the price that we might be forgiven, that He might remain just and yet still be the justifier of sinful man. What a God. What a God we serve. Praise Him tonight for His grace. His grace that's greater than all of our sin. Mike, would you lead us?